welcome to episode 47 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you join us. Today's guest is Michael Kendrick, and uh, Michael is a PhD, and he focuses his work as a consultant, a educator, and also does evaluative work with many different groups, governments, uh, private agencies, advocacy groups, uh, universities and college, uh, community organizations, and really focused on uh, so consulting and training uh, all around the uh, area of disability. And uh, Michael's done this internationally uh, across many different countries, uh, resides in the United States, uh, originally from the east coast of Canada. And um, I met Michael a, a couple of times and I've taken uh, some of his workshops and his training uh, course called Optimal Individualized Service Design that's uh, a leadership level program really focused on understanding an individual's need and figuring out how to best meet that individual's need and coming up with an individualized plan for it. So if that's something that interests you, I recommend you trying to figure out where would be the closest uh, point to 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 participate in in Michael's course, um, and he facilitates that uh, globally. So uh, there's likely an opportunity coming up in your area uh, in the, sometime in the near future. So uh, today's podcast with Michael, uh, we really focus in on answering a few questions and, and getting Michael's perspective on them. So I asked Michael uh, how people with disabilities have lived, how are they living today, and what have we learned? In the podcast, I also asked Michael about Ontario, the province of Ontario uh, in Canada's announcement around funding uh, more group homes and, and group living and get his opinion on that and why it's uh, an ill-advised uh, investment. Um, Michael gives his perspective on that as well. And we talk about what Michael calls uh, enlightened attentiveness. And uh, that's what I've named uh, this podcast. And uh, I think it's a really important thing for, for all of us to, to consider um, and to think about how we can show up in that way. So without any further ado, here's Michael Kendrick. Hey, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure to to be speaking with you today. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know you over this past year and uh, definitely learned a lot from you, Michael. So excited to have this conversation with you today. And where I'd love to start our conversation um, is really just to explore and think through and talk about how people with disabilities have lived in the past and I guess maybe where we've got to up to today. And from that, use it, use talking, maybe starting to talk through what we've learned about how people have lived and, and where we can, 
you know, uh, move and, and go forward with. So that's really the, the basis of the conversation that I would love today. But maybe if you'd be able to just start us off with um, your observations and, and thoughts around how people with disabilities have lived. That's a very good question. And um, uh, of course, they've lived under quite different circumstances, depending on which point in history and which culture they were in. So it's not that all experiences of people with disabilities are identical, um, but they uh, what we are familiar with in terms of history, uh, it's pretty clear that people with disabilities have been seen as somehow uh, 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 inferior or of less value, and uh, uh, that they are uh, have less capacity. Uh, than their brothers and sisters, uh, that they are uh, more dependent, and uh, and so on. So in this sense, the people with disabilities have been seen in a largely more negative light uh, by uh, large numbers of people, not everyone, of course, but large numbers of people. And uh, in fact, uh, there has been many periods where people with disabilities were seen as not human, uh, maybe somewhat human, but not really human like everybody else. And that has led to them being treated like they're less human than others. Uh, that uh, there was a time, uh, for instance, when uh, uh, for, you know, uh, that uh, when people were getting medical procedures, they weren't given any kind of anesthetic on the presumption that they didn't feel pain. And again, of course, that's just now seems like a silly idea. But at, uh, at that point, uh, the presumption was that they are uh, so different from everybody else that they, you just can't use the same assumptions. And so uh, uh, in many instances, people with disabilities would have had the experience of being uh, not welcome even to be born. And so it's been quite widespread practice since uh, abortion has become available have to have people uh, abort uh, children with disabilities that are diagnosed in utero. Uh, and that's a very strong statement that they're unwanted. Um, and, uh, and that goes towards many other kinds of aspects of their life that they might be seen as a burden on uh, their families, on the society, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and that they are, uh, uh, if you like, uh, possibly even uh, dangerous in some unknown ways, but uh, treated as if they are uh, somehow a menace to other people, that they would be difficult with their brothers and sisters or difficult in public or things like this. Now, I, uh, you know, I don't want to itemize every sort of negative perception that has been there, but uh, but rather to point out that the that they live in a world of assumptions created by other people that have big impacts on what kind of life they get to live, uh, and uh, everyone is subject to assumptions about them, and assumptions can be of two kinds really. They can be assumptions that liberate people to their true potentials and assumptions that hold them back. Uh, for instance, if you think just in feminist terms, 
uh, the assumption that women couldn't do this or that type of work or job had meant then that uh, women just never really got the opportunity to show that they could work in different professions, different fields, and so on. And so the assumption uh, that they couldn't do what men could do was a prejudicial assumption from where we sit today. But at the time, it wouldn't have been seen necessarily, particularly by men, as a prejudicial assumption. Uh, but in you know, from a different vantage point now, we can see that uh, women uh, dominate all professions uh, other than uh, really uh, engineering. So uh, a lot has changed that has changed our perception, and the prejudice against women uh, persists, but it's a very different level of uh, the evaluation of women than, than at other times. And so uh, all human beings, you know, are either constrained by assumptions or beliefs, uh, mindsets, or they're liberated uh, by them. And so what's in that mindset, what's in that assumption is always something we should take the time to challenge uh, if it doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, for instance, there was a time when people believed that people with disabilities couldn't work in open employment, in regular jobs in the community and so on. But now we have uh, jurisdictions where three out of four people with disabilities are working at regular jobs in the community. There was a time when people believed that they uh, couldn't uh, uh, be included in regular school classrooms. They needed to be in segregated school classrooms. Now we have ample uh, examples of school and whole school systems that are premised on the idea that the students with disabilities ought to be in alongside their age peers in the regular uh, classroom. So in each of these examples, you can see that uh, a mind shift has taken place and it has real consequences for the individual. And particularly when the individual with disability is allowed to live a more fuller life, uh, lo and behold, they do. Uh, and they benefit from a more full life, um, much as they are uh, impoverished uh, by limited opportunities. So the key thing is when we change our mind, we change our world. And uh, maybe it's, uh, there are things about our, our mindsets towards people with disabilities that, uh, that if we change them, it would be a net benefit to people with disabilities, that they would uh, you know, begin to develop uh, life opportunities that they simply aren't having at the moment. So. Uh, much of this has happened, uh, the most radical transformations really uh, that we can find in history in terms of these mindsets have really been the last two and a half generations, um, initially in the West, uh, Western societies, but has spread quite widely now into many other societies. Uh, An increased uh, support for people with disabilities is being treated as equal to other people. Uh, and uh, to having a life like other people. And the original concept uh, was borrowed from Sweden and Denmark, which was the normalization principle, which was actually created by family advocates uh, in, in, the, in the Nordic countries. Uh, and the premise was that the people with disabilities ought to be treated like everybody else and to have as normal a life as possible. Later on, it was. Uh, 
it was sort of um, made into a more sophisticated uh, version of that called social role valorization, which is uh, really uh, that uh, when people are uh, are valued and given valued social roles, they will prosper. And uh, so it's an extension of the normalization principle. And uh, that thinking um, has uh, pushed its way into almost everything you could think of in terms of the lives of people with disabilities. And this has quite beneficial effects. But what it has not done has entirely uh, transformed the lives of people with disabilities. It has radically transformed their lives. But we have persistent uh, prejudicial assumptions about people with disabilities that have not gone away. And so uh, while we've had great advances, we still are, we still face often quite, uh, quite uh, grim uh, realities. Uh, just one small statistic, and that is that people with disabilities are more likely to be exploited than other, many other groups in society. They're two and a half times more likely to be victims of crime, for instance. So uh, in many of these things that you can actually measure, life is still pretty tough for people with disabilities and, and very unfair. And some of it uh, may go unreported and unrecorded. So that's just based, I'm saying that based on what we have by way of recorded information. There may be many things that we don't appreciate fully enough at the moment because we simply aren't paying enough attention to them or don't have the data. But uh, so. Uh, where am I going with all this is really that um, uh, life will get better for people with disabilities when we pay attention to what's going on in our minds uh, and to uh, begin to shift our perspectives um, and conclusions and assumptions. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, uh, just you, if, if you don't get to be born, you don't have a very good life. And so the, I'm always concerned about the fact that people with disabilities, uh, that, uh, that people choose not to have the child be born. And, uh, you know, having met countless numbers of people with disabilities, uh, I think people with disabilities are better for society than many of the people that are valued in society. For instance, uh, I think many of the, um, you know, the you know, corrupt uh, industries and, you know, vested interests in society do more to damage society than anything people with disabilities could do. And so I actually enjoy the company of people with disabilities and I'm grateful uh, for their presence. And I've learned to appreciate them as individuals, one person at a time. And um, I don't think that everyone gets that opportunity. Um, but when they do, they often it's a revelation to them just how much uh, how much they underestimated people with disabilities and what they can do with their lives, how interesting they are as people, um, things like that. So, um, so in some sense, uh, a, uh, opening up our minds may be a bit of a revelation for us. We may just shift in many ways that we would never thought possible in terms of how we now might see uh, people with disabilities. Mm, I, I think that's a, a great 
summary uh, that you've provided there, Michael, and, and how for most of history, people with disabilities have been treated as less human. And there's this burden narrative uh, surrounding them and, and how over time, especially the last two and a half generations, uh, beliefs and mindsets have, have started to um, to shift towards people with disabilities being treated as as more human, and I think probably you and I would agree that there's there's more work to be done in terms of uh, society shifting their beliefs more towards uh, that normalization um, for for people with disabilities. And I I, I want to get your thoughts on this on. Um, I guess where we are today and and the work that that still needs to be done because I think that those limiting beliefs that that are still held by uh, pe- people in society are holding people with disabilities back or are holding them as as uh, as hostages um, and, I, and I'm stealing that language uh, from you that I've, I've heard you use um, in your in some of your teachings. So, um, and, and part of this is, you know, examples would be uh, segregated environments. So, um, you know, things that are created that are that are special, or um, you know, segregated living situations such as as institutions. Could you speak to to a little bit about those things, uh, Michael, and, and and how they are those beliefs and, and those systems, those structures are are holding people back and and holding people with disabilities hostage. Yeah, it's it's kind of logical that when people define somebody as not like us or not us, then having them with us uh, seems uh, counter uh, intuitive or counter what you would uh, want, and so uh, it leads to the rejection of people and a choice not to have people with us, and that creates then the the. The question of if they're not with us, then where are they? Well, they're somewhere else. So uh, what we do is we create a somewhere else for people with disabilities uh, that uh, is uh, typically a place that where we congregate people that uh, are believed to not be desirable to have with us. And uh, then we claim things like, well, they'd be happier with their own kind and their own kind is disabled. And so we will then congregate disabled people somewhere away from us. And the institutions of, um, of recent memory were the most obvious and visible example of that. But even in everyday life today, you'll see segregation of people with disabilities in terms of things like Special Olympics uh, is a good example of uh, sports for them uh, rather than sports with us. Uh, and uh, another good example of segregation would be, of course, segregated schools and, or sc- segregated classrooms or segregated uh, leisure opportunities of one kind or another. And segregated um, housing would be another and segregated employment. Uh, and uh, you could go on uh, that uh, there seems to be no limit to the ways in which we can have people away from us. Um, now, it's justified by people as saying, well, they wouldn't fit in 
with ordinary people in ordinary situations, uh, which is a belief. It's not it's not fact, but it's a belief. Uh, and uh, and therefore they would be happier and better, a better fit to be with people like themselves. Now, uh, what's good about the times we live in is people have questioned that belief. Uh, and of course, we now see examples of people with disabilities included everywhere. Uh, you see the people with disabilities in trans everywhere. If you on public transport, you'll see people with disabilities. You'll see people with disabilities in the shopping center. See people with disabilities uh, at a, watching a sporting event. You see people with disabilities at movie theaters. Uh, you'll see uh, people with disabilities next to you in the when you're at the dentist. Uh, and so in every element of ordinary life, you'll see an increasing presence of people with disabilities uh, rather than uh, the only time you'd see them would be off uh, with some, in some separate place uh, reserved for them. And um, in many ways, uh, the, that separateness uh, may be based on fear of people with disabilities that if they were with us, uh, some, you know, some terrible thing might happen, you know. And I was reminded of this. I was in um, South Korea doing some work and I managed to visit an old um, leper colony on an island uh, in the south um, of South Korea. And uh, uh, it was very interesting because people were afraid of people with leprosy for good reason. Uh, they had uh, a, a disease that you could catch. And so the... They were, in that instance, you could see a certain logic in keeping them separate. And when the people, their family came to see them, there was a huge road into the place. And the the people with uh, leprosy would be on one side and the families would be on the other side of the road. And they'd talk to each other across a space of three or four meters, whatever the width of the road was. And there, the, you can see fear play itself out because fear, in that sense, had a rational basis. Now, in the case of people with disabilities, you can still have fear, but it isn't necessarily irrational. So you have irrational fear or uh, or uh, outlooks towards people with disabilities that somehow they will it will be bad if they are with us. And uh, so that's a theory, if you like, a, a, a proposal. Uh, and it's a testable proposal because all you need to do to test it is to see what happens with people with disabilities when they are included. And uh, I can, I'm happy to testify that the walls did not fall down. The, uh, you know, the sky is still there. Uh, you know, the sun rises in the morning. People get along with each other. And people with disabilities, even if they've never had much social contact, uh, quickly learn what the proper rules of behavior are and so on. And uh, so people adjust to them and uh, they uh, adjust to the people around them. And uh, thankfully, we now have uh, many families uh, that uh, uh, have included their family member in every aspect of family life and community life. And uh, lo and behold, they do just fine. Uh, and all of these myths that, you know, somehow being with other people would either damage them or damage other people is proved to be a complete uh, falsehood. Now, uh, I will say this, though, uh, that 
there are issues that come up uh, in everyday community encounters between people uh, with disabilities and others. And uh, people with disabilities may, uh, from time to time, misstep or uh, misbehave, just like the rest of us. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's it's better to think of inclusion uh, as being um, that it works better when people get support to be successful in the inclusive context, uh, and we all need a bit of uh, support to be uh, successful. When particularly when when we're in new kinds of gatherings or uh, social contexts because we may not know what the proper behavior is in those contexts. And so um, a bit of uh, coaching or a little assistance uh, can be very helpful uh, as to, um, you know, getting off on the right foot. Um, so, uh, but even if you don't get off on the right foot, it's, it's not the end of the world. Uh, these things, you can pick up the pieces usually and, and move on. So. I guess the takeaway the takeaway from that is that uh, the it's it's a myth that people with disabilities can't succeed in inclusive settings. Right, and recently I saw you um, or saw a letter that you wrote, and it was, I believe, specifically um, in response or regard to government investment in institutionalized settings so in ontario uh, there it's it's looking like there's government money that's going to be invested in building group homes why is that not the best idea okay well a couple of uh, things about this uh, first of all group homes uh, are based on the premise that people with disabilities should live with each other and um, uh, that uh, that they would always be compatible and whatnot, and uh, that's simply uh, nonsensical. That uh, people should choose to live with people because they have something in common with them besides a disability. Um, and so, uh, from a, just a an everyday standard of you know, if you think, well, who am I going to live with if I'm going to live with others and I have to share the rent or something? I'm going to choose to live with people I'm compatible with. And so group homes really have a history of putting people together to live together that are incompatible. And that creates not just the problem of segregation, but also the, if you like, a kind of misfit of people being forced to live with each other who aren't uh, uh, choosing to do it. It's involuntary. It's forced uh, shared living. Uh, but it's also uh, can be uh, uh, quite upsetting uh, for people because it creates very often a very stressful existence for people. Uh, so that's on just on the personal kind of level for the person. Secondly, it, it creates the idea that uh, you know that that's the only option for people with disabilities, uh, when in fact we have you know provinces like Newfoundland that. Back in the beginning, when they're just introducing group homes in Canada, uh, they decided they weren't going to do group homes. They were going to have other living arrangements for people that are more inclusive and more individualized. And they've never had to do group homes. Uh, and uh, so the Ontario premise that the only option or the best option uh, is group homes is, I think, quite questionable. 
And I think personally, from my own experience, having evaluated the services in multiple countries and uh, looked at the actual story of people's lives uh, many times over, uh, I find the individualized one person at a time arrangements much better for people because it gives you not just one choice. It gives you thousands of different choices in terms of finding a living arrangement that suits you because there are many different living arrangements besides group homes. Uh, and it doesn't mean that if you don't live in a group home, you're going to live alone in an apartment. That You can live alone in an apartment. People, Some people prefer that. Uh, but you can also have a housemate that isn't a disabled person. You could join in with a few people your own age uh, and get a bigger house. Um, you, No matter where people with disabilities live from a housing point of view, whatever setting. And for instance, there are people with disabilities that own their own home because they were fortunate enough to have a family that helped them acquire a home of their own that they owned, but many rent. Um, and uh, it's also true that many people with disabilities might, over a period of time, live in a number of different uh, arrangements, uh, you know, like everybody else, that as your life circumstances change, you might change your living arrangement. And so... Uh, Many of these people, uh, I've been part of many exercises to create alternatives to group homes, and it's quite doable. Uh, so, And it's already been done in Ontario. So the idea that the government should decide on a single option as being crucial, you know, as sort of the backbone of their residential support system, I think is very short-sighted. Uh, and I think group homes are really mini-institutional. Uh, and they were one of the best ideas of the 1970s, but now we're almost a half century later, and uh, we need to move our thinking along. And the group home is not at the leading edge of options for people. The more personalized, uh, one person at a time arrangements are infinitely better qualitatively. So I think the government of Ontario is being held hostage to a a dying service model, in a sense, a model that should uh, go the way uh, go, and go away and uh, be replaced by more up-to-date options. And um, I don't mean to pick on the government of Ontario because there'd be group homes in many jurisdictions, but uh, it's also the case that in many places, governments have uh, chosen to expand their individualized options and freeze the growth of segregated congregate options like group homes. For instance, that's what's happened in Vermont, and you know, and it's happened in, um, uh, in, uh, in, for instance, in the Australian context by essentially giving people the individual funding to create one person at a time arrangements if they're if they if that's what they want. So I don't think from a technical point of view that the, it's, it's all, all that difficult to create more individualized options. But the, um, the, both the service providers and the government of Ontario seem uh, convinced that, that, uh, that that's the case. And I think history will show that they are deeply misguided in doing so. And, uh, and it will also reveal that they were told this. They've been told that they were misguided, and they've chosen to ignore that advice. So I think in this sense, the uh, history will have uh, a lot to judge them on in terms of how they've missed a great opportunity in 2018 to put an end to segregation 
uh, freeze it and uh, scale back the group homes and uh, uh, if you like grow the more individualized more socially inclusive uh, more more uh, if you like tailor made options um, so yeah that would be my view mm-hmm. yeah so in the in this conversation we we set out to talk about how people with disabilities have lived and and I think we've we've covered that and, and, and how they're currently living. And we've touched on some of the things that we've learned, right? So we've touched on uh, standardized living versus individualized or, or personalized living. And obviously there's a lot more benefits to individuals with personalized living. Uh, the concept of, of normalization and social role valorization um, and the benefits of, of helping people to, uh, to live more normative uh, lives and, and to build their identities, which will help to, to build relationships uh, with others. Uh, Michael, is there anything else that you want to add to the question of of what have we what have we learned and 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 what what would be a benefit to carry forward? Well, I think uh, I think a very important thing we've learned is that we've been much much too conservative, too cautious, too. Um, uh, pessimistic about the the true potentials of people with disabilities. We've almost always had too low expectations for what people could do with their lives. So it, the the takeaway lesson from that, um, if you like, the, that our fallback position is always a pessimistic one, is that we have to be more self-consciously uh, uh, optimistic about uh, people with disabilities, much more make much more presumptions in a positive direction about their capacities, about their adaptive abilities, and about their life potentials than we've been doing. Now, it's not uh, to criticize people because they've been pessimistic, but rather to point out that the, the issue isn't people with disabilities, it's the pessimism about people with disabilities that's the problem. Uh, because people with disabilities, uh, when the opportunities are provided, when the support is there to take advantage of the opportunities, generally uh, uh, exceed expectations. Uh, and uh, and even though in the process many people with disabilities have a big learning curve, uh, they do learn and they do adapt. And that's why we now have jurisdictions where three out of four people with disabilities are working uh, in uh, regular jobs, in regular places in the community, um, when for years, uh, decades, centuries possibly, people just never thought they could do that. And so if we were wrong in in being so pessimistic, we're probably going to be wrong again. And so we need a new reflex, if you like, which would be the the reflex of positive presumption. We should just presume that we are being much too uh, pessimistic and uh, and uh, have a reflex almost develop a reflex to start questioning ourselves and uh, giving uh, people with disabilities the benefit of the doubt rather than uh, prejudging them as as not being able to adapt or be successful so the issue is mm-hmm. isn't really them the issue is the mindset of People like myself and others that have created, a, as you've used the term hostage, uh, that they become a hostage to our low expectations. 
Right. There's a quote that you shared in the optimal individualized service design uh, course that I think captures this. Uh, so just to share back the quote, uh, if you treat uh, an individual as they are, they will stay as they are. If you treat people as they could be, they will become what they ought to be. Yeah, it's a, it's a great quote. And um, it's... Um... Uh, and that, of course, was written, I think that was Goethe that uh, may have said that originally. Um, but that was written really as a universal principle, uh, that uh, that if the same thing was applied to any of us, uh, we'd probably end up with the same misfortunes as people with disabilities have. So, uh, and again, you can see that, uh, you know, uh, you see the racism uh, and how... Uh, People treat people from different races as if they uh, aren't what they could be and therefore never get the opportunities to show what they could be. So it's a, it's a universal principle, but it also applies to people with disabilities as well. So for uh, families that might be listening to this conversation, to supporters that are listening, um, how do we how do we move forward? How to how do we put higher or high expectations on people with disabilities? How do we support them to, to be human? How do, we, how do we change cultural perceptions to accept people with disabilities as with us? I know these are some big questions, but are there any, any tools, any um, concepts that, that are coming to mind that, that people can practically and tangibly uh, take and, and act on? Yes, there would be. I, I think the, um, uh, the, there are many people that would, would have uh, pointed out that we all human beings are profoundly alike in our essence. Uh, and that uh, people with disabilities ha- aren't subhuman or less than human. They're as fully human as any other human being. And in that sense, the principle should be the deep respect for the full humanity of people with disabilities. Um, and so in this sense, the implication is that if something benefits the rest of the world, it will benefit people with disabilities as well. Uh, And again, um, uh, when we deprive people with disabilities of benefits that come from community and from society, then we are uh, essentially undermining their ability as human beings to live fully. And uh, we are, in a sense, damaging uh, people with disabilities. So that's sort of the principle. One of the applications comes from social role valorization theory, which is the concept of the culturally valued analog. And that may be a term that's completely unfamiliar to people, but what it means essentially is we should always, with people with disabilities, provide to them the same options that the rest of us who are more valued in society potentially have available to us. So we should always do the normal thing and make the normal thing available to people with disabilities just almost on principle. Because if it's good for everybody else, it's good for people with disabilities uh, to have access to whatever that might be. And um, uh, for instance, we now uh, uh, you know see examples, for instance, of people with disabilities 
having the same hobbies as other people, the same uh, sort of pastimes, uh, things that, uh, that uh, for instance, I was uh, in Australia one time, met a man uh, with Down syndrome. His father was a martial arts uh, instructor, and the son had become a black belt in uh, some kind of martial arts. I can't remember what it was, but I think it was Taekwondo. Uh, and uh, it's not like everybody with disability wants to become a martial arts instructor or high level. But uh, if it were of interest to them, why not give them the chance to see if that really is something they'd like to do? So in this sense, people with disabilities, when they get the same opportunities, the culturally valued analog, uh, they often uh, find it's, it's something that does suit them. And uh, so their life expands accordingly. And so you could have, uh, you know, people with disabilities be very good with a particular musical instrument, or they could be very good at a particular type of work, or they could find that they're really into gardening, or that they really like uh, Asian cooking. Uh, so all of the things that others might enjoy, it's conceivable that a person with a disability might enjoy them and they become uh, proficient in them. So in this sense, where we've had great everyday progress, and this would be very important for families, um, is just to uh, don't uh, judge ahead of time that something won't work with a person with a disability, but rather keep an open mind uh, and uh, see if uh, you know you can include the person with disability in, in an experience that you know, others uh, uh, from time to time enjoy and see what... Uh, what people ultimately um, uh, do, uh, you know, make their niches in life. So in this sense, the culturally valued analog is that every human being uh, kind of creates the life that suits them best if they can do it. Uh, and uh, that's the principle that we should have with people with disabilities, that each should have an opportunity to build an interesting life for themselves that's satisfying and fulfilling. Uh, and that's why the more individualized options are going to be so much better, because it, you're not putting everybody into the same size shoe. You're saying every person's a little bit different from the next one. Uh, and so everybody needs their own sort of individual uh, path in life. Um, and again, that's why I just I find it uh, regressive to have people with disabilities being given the same living option, like group homes or you know, or anything that uh, uh, is is non-individualized because the rest of us insist on uh, being able to chart our own course in life and to shape our lives in, in every detail, really. Right. Yeah. So giving people the same opportunities that, that anybody else would have and starting with what is valued in, in our culture, in our society, and, and starting with what the... Uh, ordinary option is for for everybody um, instead of jumping to the the special option and and when thinking about what that culturally culturally valued analog is what is that normal conversation like for for anybody um, and and starting there um, one of the things that that I've heard you speak about Michael is people with disabilities haven't had a lot of some people with disabilities haven't had a lot of experiences or they haven't had a lot of opportunities so they might not exactly know what they might like so for an individual like that what 
what would you say to them? Uh, well, it's quite possible that people may have been deprived of opportunities, uh, you know, for often in some in the old days, it used to be for a very long period of time. But what we learned from all that is that uh, if that's been the case, that people have not had many opportunities, the solution is uh, quite clear, which is uh, start creating some new opportunities and make up uh, for the difference. And uh, if you're wondering, well, could is it too late? It's never too late. Uh, to try to get a uh, different taste of life and life opportunities. And so we've seen many people with disabilities have been held back for decades that once they had the opportunities, they quickly uh, uh, almost in a sense became a different person because they now could live in such a different way and and have gone on to thrive in new lives. Uh, so even though they look deprived and have been deprived, um, that is overcomable. Uh, it has its uh, persisting effects, of course, but uh, if people quickly, uh, you know, you could imagine if life starts getting good, uh, um, people aren't going to complain a whole lot. It typically is uh, a welcome change for people to have their life fill up with interesting things to do and uh, new experiences. Uh, the caution would be to uh, to do it at the pace that the individual wants to do it, and rather than some kind of forced march towards a good life, almost like it would be better to do an exploratory, life-tasting kind of journey of a little of this, a little of that, and see what you know sticks, really, in terms of what the person really uh, is drawn to. Uh, but again, um, uh, the, the whole thing is quite feasible and quite realistic, that even if you've been held back, you can uh, make up for it later uh, simply by <clears throat> adding new opportunities and experiences and supporting people with mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And with, with families and, and I guess supporters, organizations, one thing that I, that I see is uh, people at times will jump too quickly to, oh, well, how is that person going to do that? And the conclusion quickly is drawn that that person cannot do that, uh, whatever that, that thing might be. Um, so what are some ways that we can, or, you know, mindsets that we can take to avoid falling into that trap? And, and I guess for me, where this also comes into, into play is, is really around autonomy and and decision-making. So the assumption being made that that individual with a disability doesn't have the capability to make that kind of a decision or they, they can't, uh, they're not able to take that level of responsibility. Can you share your thoughts around, around those topics? Yeah, this is again, part of that thinking that they, they're somehow their disability means that they have no capacity at all. Whereas a, a more true uh, appraisal of all of us is that we all lack capacities of one kind or another to some degree um, and people with disabilities may or may not be, have unlimited capacity, but they certainly have capacity. And the presumption should always be, particularly around their own decision making, that they can make decisions on their own behalf. And it's better that they do that because they will learn uh, how to make good decisions and they will experience the consequences of decisions that didn't turn out to be so, so good. Uh, like everybody else, it's how you learn about decision making is making uh, decisions and uh, practicing decision making. And 
And so you can then support and safeguard people uh, in terms of their vulnerabilities in such instances. Um, and so we have, uh, you know, the phenomena really of what's called supported uh, decision making, which is just um, uh, based on the premise that people should be the decision maker in their own life, but they'll do better with that if they're supported. And so they can pick their own supporters and uh, and to help them with the areas of decision making that they find challenging. And so a lot of this is really getting the right supports in place uh, that uh, allow the person to stay the decision maker in their life, but to manage the ups and downs that come with the decisions. Uh, and so all of us get support with decisions constantly. We don't notice that we're getting it, but we talk to people all the time about, should I do this or should I buy that? Or, uh, you know, we, we, we consult others and benefit from the support uh, of others on decisions. And sometimes we should have consulted with others on some decisions and didn't. And, uh, and we were, would have done better to have gotten some advice. So be that as it may, um, supporting uh, people isn't an unnatural thing to do. It's actually a sensible kind of a strategy. And so people with disabilities um, typically rebel against not being able to be decision makers because they feel things are done to them and on them and at them rather than with them. And, uh, and so it often provokes them into oppositional behavior because people are running around deciding for them when they themselves should be the person that's deciding things in their own life. And so you could see why they feel affronted uh, by people controlling them and you know, doing things to them without their permission and so on. So uh, you also tend to have people that are easier to get along with when they are become much more the decision maker in their life because they feel um, they don't feel uh, that people are a threat anymore because they they're not losing their decision making um, and uh, therefore uh, people aren't taking something away from them. Uh, people are there in a very supportive way to them and with them, and so therefore a lot of behavioral issues kind of disappear that are related to this underlying loss of autonomy that's been imposed upon them. Now, uh, that's not to say that people with disabilities uh, will make good decisions in every instance. Um, and um, and uh, so it is important, uh, almost it would be neglectful uh, to uh, not support people uh, if one can do it, uh, even when they don't ask for it. So in other words, uh, there may be times where the person with a disability won't uh, be uh, willing to take support or uh, ask for it. Uh, and uh, I think there are times where people can intervene and, uh, and uh, you know, speak to the person even though they weren't asked to. Uh, but it has to be done quite respectfully, as it would with any of us if somebody stuck their nose in our business. But I think people that are concerned about us ought to be able to say to us, you know, I'm concerned that this, about decision X or Y, and um, I don't. It's still your decision to make. But this were some thoughts I had, and I apologize for interfering. But I'm just concerned 
that you get good outcomes or whatever. So in that sense, you're not giving up the ability to influence the individual, uh, but you are uh, giving up the control of the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think that's an important distinction, uh, the ability to influence versus control them. Yeah. And, and you make a lot of really good points there. And, uh, and I, I think it's really good that you pointed out that we all make supported decisions and it might not just be uh, quite as obvious to us, but uh, you know, if we're, especially if we're considering bigger things in life, right? Like if we're considering a change in, in job, then we're likely going to speak with our, you know, if we have a partner, we'll speak with our partner, maybe our parents or our trusted friends or advisors or a mentor. Um, so there's, there's many instances where we are, uh, seeking that that support for our decisions one of the things that i've um, seen as a a valuable um, structure for individuals with disabilities is a support circle so um, michael could you just briefly at a high level describe what a support circle is for those uh, listeners that um, this might be a a new concept and, and how that could be um, of benefit to an individual with a disability? Yeah, an intentional uh, support circle or network uh, is a mechanism that's uh, emerged uh, uh, quite some time ago now, but it really is something that just mimics what happens in most people's life that uh, you draw people around you who could be helpful. Uh, and uh, that's where the intentionality comes that you draw the people that are intentionally helpful at that time with the issues that may be present at that time. And so in this sense, a couple of things about these networks. The networks exist for to solve different issues, though. Uh, so a support circle isn't the kind of generic all-purpose support circle. Typically, is really there uh, to kind of engage the issues that are, are uh, important for that particular person at that particular time. So, for instance, if a person was moving out of the family home, getting their own place, transitioning into adulthood, then you'd be dealing with the sort of whatever support they need with uh, with, with that process. But if you um, were dealing with an individual that had some very serious health issues to manage but wanted to live independently, then you were, you'd be dealing with, well, how can we help the person with those challenges and help preserve their independence. So it'd be a different kind of focus. Uh, And other support circles may be there more for social purposes, that the person really likes people and likes relationships and really needs an inner network uh, in their life. So that support circle would have a a quite different uh, composition, probably, and also purpose. So in that sense, you could think of support circles as something you can tailor to a particular person, and they may not need to exist forever in their life. It may be at a particular time a support circle will be helpful. At another time, it might be a bit more superfluous uh, because the issues uh, aren't there anymore. Right. Yeah, and that's a the great a great overview. And not every circle is the same, obviously. And and again, that it goes back to what you were mentioning around. Uh, individualized and personalized uh, 
support and per- and everybody's unique and and a, a support circle is no exception to that um Michael, I think that there's been a, a lot of, of value and a lot of things to think about for for listeners uh, today. Is there a, a message or a challenge that you would like to to leave with the listeners? Um, yeah, I think a very important challenge that I, I feel in my own life constantly with people with disabilities is to give them uh, quality attention uh when you're with them, um, and if you like uh, that, if you pay attention to people, a lot of things about people and their lives will become more clear to you. And in this sense, um, I think if we could only do one thing in life to be supportive of people with disabilities, it would be to pay attention. Um, to let us get instructed by them simply by knowing the person and getting to know them better, but to be really attentive to learning uh, who they are and what their life is like. Um, In this sense, we don't know where that will take us, but it will certainly raise our consciousness and change us um, and and, uh, for the better. And uh, I think one great a shortcoming all of us have is we simply don't take people with disabilities seriously enough. Uh, and uh, and I think the antidote to that is, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but I'd say enlightened attentiveness um, to the person and let it go where it goes. You know, it's, you don't know what will come of it, but I think it's the most deeply respectful thing we can do is to pay attention to a human being uh, uh, with a, with an eagerness to be made different by by paying attention that you know that we will be uh, enlightened uh, in ways that we aren't if we ignore the person. Mm, I love that enlightened attentiveness, Michael. Is there somewhere that folks listening can go to? learn more about either some of the the writings that you have done or content that you've put together that supports our our conversation today? Yes, I I do have a website, but it's actually being worked on at the moment in Australia. And um, so it's not online, uh, but my material is on a lot of other people's websites and whatnot. You know, I've got YouTube videos, various things. So I think if you just... uh, if people were to um, Google um, just Michael Kendrick or Michael Kendrick Consulting, uh, you'll you'll get drawn to many different websites. And then on those websites, there'll be additional links. Um, and that's just for me. But uh, many of these other websites have other interesting people and things on them that uh, might be a whole lot better than anything I could offer. So um, uh, that, you know, if people don't mind doing that, uh, uh, Googling, that's for the moment, that would be best. I probably have something like 150 publications and they're, you know, I, I put all those things on the Internet if, in the event that they might be helpful to somebody. So they're sitting on a lot of websites, so it shouldn't be too hard to find them. Okay. 
Awesome. Well, Michael, I really appreciate the insightful conversation today. And uh, yeah, just grateful for you to come on the podcast. Well, be grateful. I'm grateful to be part of it. And I'm so grateful that people like you are doing these podcasts. It's uh, so helpful. So my compliments. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. We will talk soon. Okay, thanks. A big thank you to Michael Kendrick for coming on the podcast today and sharing his insights and perspective on how people with disabilities have lived, um, how they're currently living, and and what we've learned um, and what we can take forward. So uh, super grateful for that. And just a couple of insights uh, from me as I've been uh, editing this podcast and, and reflecting upon it. And this concept of uh, enlightened, intent, enlightened attentiveness, I think, is, is very important in the, in the challenge that Michael gives to us about really paying attention to that one individual that you are with. And to me, this is really about deep listening. Not only listening to words, if the individual has words, but looking at their expression looking at their energy level when talking about a specific topic or area, looking at body language, looking at everything around that person, what you're feeling about how they are being in that moment. All of those things will give you clues, give you information into that individual and to be there just in that moment, to be present with them. I think is all of those things encompass what it is to be or or to have enlightened attentiveness. So as you think about how how you could provide enlightened attentiveness to an individual, um, maybe consider some of those areas or using all of your senses to to be there for an individual and to pay attention. The other thing that I wanted to mention was around the, the topic of autonomy. And Michael talked about um, how we sometimes want to or, or have controlled an individual with a disability by making all of their decisions um, or making a lot of their decisions and, and taking that power away from them. And I was in a conversation uh, with my sister and... Um, uh, I, I invited her over and it was around dinner time and she asked, can, uh, she asked, are you going to make me dinner? And it was one of those moments where I realized that, um, that's something that she always has done for her and she's never had the opportunity to really do that, uh, with someone or do that on her own. So I said to her, I certainly won't do it for, I certainly won't make dinner for you, but I would love to make dinner with you. And I, I think it, it, that conversation with Michael around uh, autonomy and making decisions for people rather than with people extends out further into how we support people. Are we doing things for people or are we doing things with people. So I just wanted to to share that brief little story with with my sister and how we could think about are we doing for 
Are we making decisions for? Are we doing tasks for? Or are we doing them with or alongside people? And when we do things for people, we take away their power. We take away their autonomy. When we do things with people, we are empowering them and giving them more opportunity to explore and to live life. So I hope those insights for me were were somewhat beneficial. And I am grateful for you joining today on the podcast. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm not sure the guests that I'm going to bring you. I uh, promise the conversation will be interesting, or at least I'm going to find it interesting. So I hope you will as well. So again, thanks for listening to the conversation today. And We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability build a full and meaningful life.